It's always an honor to be here with you. Uh, we're continuing our series, Christ in the Psalms, uh, a series from the book of Psalms, not necessarily a series on the book of Psalms. If we were to do that, it would take us nearly three years. There's 150 Psalms. If you were to read a Psalm a day, it takes you nearly five months to do that. And so what we have chosen to do is sort of look at eight Psalms. Uh, there's eight categories that some biblical scholars sort of divide the Psalms out into. And so we've looked at one Psalm from each of those categories, understanding we call it Christ in the Psalms, uh, because there's a scarlet thread, if you will, of redemption uh, throughout God's word that we see from the book of Genesis all the way through to the book of Revelation and points to the salvation we have in Jesus Christ, the relationship we have with him, the, his very spirit indwelling us as believers. And if you're here this morning sort of seeking out the things of Christ, sort of checking him out, uh, welcome. Uh, it's a great time to do that as we look at this psalm. Uh, this is a Mitcham psalm. If you know what a Mitcham psalm is, please come up and, and tell me because it's a mystery. Uh, no one really knows what a Mitcham psalm is. The term itself uh, comes from uh, the title of the psalm uh, from the book, but we, we really don't know what it addresses. Five of the six of the Mitcham psalms uh, are musical recommendations. Four of them are connected specifically with events in David's life. And the one we're going to look at this morning is Psalm 56, and it's directly um, from David's life. It speaks about two issues, trials and trust. And, and usually those two go together, don't they? Trials and trust. And so that's sort of the, 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 the theme that's addressed in Psalm 56. And again, it, it's a psalm that comes out of a context of, of David, King David's life before he actually is king. How do we know that? Well, the earliest manuscripts give us this sort of heading to the psalm, Psalm 56 says, to the choir master, according to the dove on far-off Terebiths, a mitcom of David when the Philistines seized him in Gath. Now, what, what is exactly happening here? When did the Philistines seize David in Gath? What is, what is the event in David's life? Well, it's recorded for us in the book of 1 Samuel, Old Testament book of 1 Samuel 21, 10 through 15. David finds himself between a rock and a hard place. You may recall, if you know the story of David, as a young shepherd boy, uh, he, he understood trials. In fact, he said of himself that at times he had to fight off bears and lions who were trying to get the sheep, but he had other trials that would come later in life. And, and one day he, he's out in the field and he's called in and a prophet's there and says, you're the one who's going to be king of Israel, uh, which was sort of an interesting thing probably to be told because there was an existing king of Israel at the time. In fact, that king had called uh, David to come and, and bring him peace because David was a, was a musician and as he would play, it would bring peace to that king. But later that king, King Saul, would, would become very jealous of David. And, and you say, well, why? Well, as they would go to battle, David becomes a warrior. You may re recall that as a, as a young adult, a young man, he, he defeats the, the Philistines' uh, champion, Goliath, but then later becomes this warrior and he goes out into battle, and then when they would come back from battle, he'd probably be riding somewhere near Saul, the people would yell out, Saul has killed his hundreds. Now, that's a pretty cool thing if you're a warrior to hear. You've killed your hundreds until all of a sudden he hears the second part of it, but David's killed his thousands. So King Saul's jealous of David, and, and we find in this account in 1 Samuel that Saul is, is chasing David down. He wants to kill him. He sees him as a threat, and he's going to wipe him out. And so David's trying to figure out, where do I go? He's going all over Israel, all over Israel. And everywhere he goes, two things, one of two things happen. Either someone reports where he's at, someone betrays him, 
or he puts the people in jeopardy that he's staying with who are protecting him. He doesn't want to do either of those anymore. And so what does he decide? He decides, maybe I can go incognito to the Philistines. Now, you'd have to be in a pretty bad place to choose your enemies to go hide. But he thinks, there's one place Saul would never look for me, and he's right, among the Philistines. So he shows up. He, he goes, he decides, I'm going to hire myself as a, as a mercenary to the Philistines, but I'm going to disguise myself so hopefully they won't recognize me. But there's a problem. They do. And, and they recognize him, and now he's, he's asking himself, I'm sure, a couple of questions. <laughs> Are they going to imprison me? Are they going to kill me? So David comes up with a plan. He's going to act insane. In fact, the word tells us he, he pounds his head on a city gate, foaming at the mouth, spit dripping from his beard. And the Philistines see this, and they decide to have nothing to do with him. Now, again, Bible scholars have, have assumed some things. They, they say, well, when we look at this, why didn't they... Why didn't they kill David on the spot? Why didn't they imprison him? Why, why do they have nothing to do with David? And there's a couple of possibilities. One is that we know just through archaeological discoveries and so forth, that the Philistines, for whatever reason, thought that people who were insane were protected by the gods. And so it could be that the Philistines thought, well, we're not going to mess with the gods. It could also be, here's one that, that sort of makes sense to me too, they saw David, this mighty warrior, insane, and they thought it would be more of a punishment to let him continue to live like that than to kill him. But we're not sure. We do have recorded for us the words of Achish the king. This is what he said. Can't you see he's crazy? Why did you let him in here? Don't you think I have enough crazy people to put up with without adding another? Have you ever had one of those days? <laughs> I read that. I can relate to that. So get him out of here. Get him out of here. At any rate, can you imagine what David's enduring, this trial? Here he is, right, between a rock and a hard place, a king who's trying to kill him, a people who's trying to kill him. He's acting insane. I mean, this is a crazy situation. And David has to ask the question, where do I get safety? Where can I be secure? And this leads us into our psalm, again, this double-themed psalm on trial and trust. David's under attack, but listen to what he writes right at the beginning of Psalm 56, verses one and two. He says, be gracious to me, O God, for man tramples on me. All day long an attacker oppresses me. My enemies trample on me all day long, for many attack me proudly. And we can lose what David says at the beginning of the Psalm by looking at all this attack language that happens in the, in the verse one and two. But he starts out by saying, God be gracious to me. Be gracious to me, O God. And when I read that, I realize that David understood the basis that he had of approaching the Lord. It wasn't his own merit. He doesn't come to God and say, God, you know, be gracious to me because I deserve it. Because the word gracious implies David knows he doesn't deserve it. David knows that he hasn't worked so hard that he's earned anything with God. He just knows that God is loving and caring and so he says, Lord, I, I know you're gracious. I know you're loving. I know you're merciful. Would you be gracious to me? And, and it's one of the lessons from the psalm that just jumps out to me because I don't know about your faith journey, but there's been times on my faith journey when I know I need to approach God, but I think, how can I approach him? I haven't been really all that nice lately. Come on now. How can I approach him? It's been maybe a little while since I 
sought him in prayer or a little while since I was in his word or a little while since I was even nice to my colleague at work who drives me nuts. And here David says, it's, it's not by your merit, it's by his graciousness. Don't let your failings keep you from God. He's the answer, not the problem. And so David approached God, oh God, be gracious to me, not on my merit, but on your mercy. And then he identifies the crisis, doesn't he? His life is in danger. And so this isn't a small problem. This is, this is, a, this is a life and death situation, literally. He's being attacked physically. We'll find later in the psalm that he's even being attacked verbally. And what do we learn then, just from these first two verses, on this double theme of trial and trust? Well, I think as we read it, we realize that we discover that David's circumstances and inability to deal with them throw him into the hands of God. That the very circumstance David finds himself in and his acknowledgement that I really have no answers to this thing really drive him to go into the hands of God. Now, truth be told, it could do the other. And maybe you've had that as part of your faith journey at times where you're going through a trial and instead of drawing you closer to God, it drove you away. God's not driving you away. Your faith challenge is driving you away, but that's the choice you made. But when we look at this psalm, we find out where, where David's at. He says, no, 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 I'm not going to draw further away from God because I'm going through a difficult time. I know he's the only answer in the midst of this problem. I'm going to draw closer to him. I'm going to acknowledge that he's the answer, but he's the one that's going to guide me through this. He continues about where his confidence is in verses 3 and 4. He says, when I am afraid, I put my trust in you, in God, whose word I praise in God I trust. I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? When I'm afraid, I put my trust in you. David had just sought the Lord's help, and now he reaffirms his faith in God, and he talks about this, when I'm afraid, what he does. And we know that, that faith can cause us to react in different ways. Faith can cause us to fight. I mean, fear can cause us to fight. Fear can cause us to freeze. Fear can cause us to flee, you know? And it's all according to how you're wired, which one of those resonate with you. If you're a fighter, you know, it resonates. You go, well, I'm not going to flee. I'm a fighter. And yet the reality of it is, as we look at these reactions to fear, that, that really they're not good or bad. Some of them make sense in certain situations. You know, the idea of fear propelling us to fight. I think of a teacher of mine from middle school who would always say, if you can run away and live the fight another day. He understood that you're not going to win every fight. Not every fight is one you should fight. And, and yet he was sort of a fighter. Uh, fear can cause us to freeze, and sometimes that's a good thing. Have you ever been in a situation, maybe where you're driving, driving and you have the right away, but you pause a little bit, and then someone zooms on by? It's a good thing you freezed. Fear can cause us to flee, and, and sometimes that's good, sometimes it's not. But, but what interests me is, is these are the three more common reactions we talk to talk about when we're talking about fear. But David offers us a fourth. Fear in this instant activates David's faith. So there's fighting, there's freezing, there's fleeing, there's activated faith. Faith. David trusts in God. David falls upon God's faithfulness. He places his trust in the Lord. And that word trust there, the specific word that he uses, means to rely upon, to be secure in. It reminds me of Jeremiah 17, 7 which reads this way. It says, blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is in the Lord. Proverbs 16, 20. 
Whoever gives thought to the word will discover good, and blessed is he who trusts in the Lord. See a theme there? Blessed is the person who trusts in the Lord. This trusting. Believers who trust in the Lord are, are what? The word of God tells us. There's promise of refreshment and protection and being surrounded by God's mercy. They will not ultimately fall. And so David in verse four praises God. He praises God's word because it's in God's word that God reveals himself to David. It contains promises. And David knows that God is true to his promises. Since David trusts God, he declares what? I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? Now, that's a really interesting statement because I don't know about you, but if we want to be very creative, we can think about what flesh could do to him. Come on. Sometimes we read those things in Scripture and go, yes, we don't think about them, right? But if you think about it, I don't know about you, I can have a whole list of what people can do to other people. So is David saying that people can't hurt him? Absolutely not. Is David saying that if you're a follower of God, you're never going to face difficult situations? Well, no, he's writing this out of a difficult situation. That would actually make him insane. If he were to say, if you're a follower of God, you're not going to have trouble. But by the way, I'm writing this psalm because I'm in trouble and I'm a follower of God. No, no, no. What he's saying is ultimately, you plus God's more than enough. Ultimately, there's a promise that God is with you, that he'll never leave you or forsake you. And so what do we discover about trials and trust in this psalm? Well, we discover that trust dispels fear. For when David trusts in God, he does not fear people. He's secure in the Lord. That it's not that he's still not in this, this life and death struggle, but when he's looking to God and his promises, he realizes that the promises of God are greater than his trial. But anyone who's out to get him, even a king, is not more powerful than God. And that God's true to his word. In fact, he, he wants us to understand this. So he actually defines the oppression he's under, the difficulty he's under, even greater. Look at verses five through seven. He says, all day long they injure my cause. All their thoughts are against me for evil. They stir up strife, they lurk. They watch my steps as they have waited for my life. For their crime will they escape. Think of that question. For their crime will they escape. In wrath, cast down the peoples of God. What's he saying? He, he, cast down the peoples of God. He's saying, will these people get away with it? Wipe them out, God. Ever been there? Jesus sick them? You know? That's where David's at. David's enemies are slandering him. They have these evil thoughts against him. And here evil, the word that he uses means distress and misery and injury and disaster. And that's, that's what they want for David. They want him wiped out. They want him eliminated. But what's the point? The slandering of David is intentional, he says. These are intentionally, people intentionally doing evil against him. In fact, it's organized, it's deceptive. He says they're even stalking him like an animal on a hunt waiting to strike. But in the face of such evil, David asks a question, will they get away with it? Then David asks God for justice. I don't have time this morning to really unpack what the Bible teaches us about the existence of evil and God's justice. So I've got to look at it very simply, but I can't just like look over what David writes here. He's saying, will, these, will this evil ever be taken care of? Have you ever asked that question? I mean, why is there evil in the world and why hasn't God just wiped out evil? And in the simple answer, and again, I don't have time to totally unpack it, is there's evil in the world because of sin. 
right? Come on. How many of you have been reading your scripture, right? Evil's in the world because of sin. And God will, in the final day, wipe evil out. But Peter gives us an insight. Peter says, but he doesn't wipe out all evil now because he's patient and loving, waiting for people to turn to him. See, I, I don't have a problem believing God's just. Sometimes I have a problem with his timeline. You follow me? I have no problem believing that in the end he's going to deal with evil. It's the timeline that can frustrate me sometimes. When I try to play God and think I know better. But the reality of it is this, that even the smallest sin against an infinite God has infinite consequences. And the only reason that I can stand here and say, God, take care of evil is because I already find myself in Christ. See, if I wasn't in Christ, I wouldn't want him to take care of evil because then he would have to wipe me out. Church? But sometimes as Christians, we come to Christ and all of a sudden we go, well, I'm in. Forget about them. Deal with it. We don't want to admit it, but that's how we are. And Peter says, oh, oh, wait a minute. God is patient and loving. Be patient and loving for those around you who have yet to receive Christ. Celebrate God's patience on their behalf. Amen, church? So David's asking a question we've asked, and he's going to understand an answer that we understand, but we're not always okay with because we understand God's just, but we aren't always happy with his timeline. But God's wrath and anger, after all, is not an irrational outburst. It's a moral responsibility to immorality. And as we study scripture, we know that when Jesus returns, that every knee will bow, every tongue confess that Christ is Lord. But the reality of it is salvation comes to those who choose him today. And so David's living in the same world we live in then, where, where sin is still present, where people still mistreat people. And yet he, David says, my trust is not in the world, but in the Lord. David continues, verses 8 through 11. He writes, you have, count of, you have kept count of my tossings. Put my tears in your, in your bottle. They're not, are they not in your book? Then my enemies will turn back in the day when I call. I, this I know that God is for me. In God whose word I praise, in the Lord whose word I praise, in, in God I trust. I shall not be afraid. What can man do for me? He, he, he's just simply saying that, listen, God hasn't forgotten my troubles. In fact, he places them in a Bible, in a bottle. They're written in a book. David describes himself as a grief-ridden, rejected wanderer. However, David acknowledges that, that God remembers his sorrows. And, and so he comes to the Lord in prayer because David understands his secret weapon is prayer. He knows that there's power in prayer. But the solution isn't found in the problem. It's found in the one who exists beyond all the problems. He's the one who stands aside from his creation. It's, it's God himself. And so he, he comes to the Lord in prayer. This is, this is David's weapon. He fights through prayer. And I don't know about you, but that challenges me because unfortunately I think all too often prayer is a last resort instead of our first. When I can do nothing else, I pray. And David understood, no, 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 no. Start with prayer. Here's a crucial question. Do we turn to God in our time of need as a redeemer or only when our resources are exhausted? Every day, do we, do we realize we're dependent upon him or do we only come to him with the big problems because we can take care of the small ones? David says, no, my trust is in him. When David calls on the power of God, the power of evil is broken. He says, I know that God is for me. And I think of the words of Paul who writes that 
If God is for us, who can be against us? Doesn't mean there aren't people against us, church. That's not what Paul's saying. He's saying, but when, when God is on the scene, what's it matter? Ultimately, we know where our victory lies. And, and what David means by know here is he knows experientially. In other words, he's saying, yeah, we can, we can read God's word and we can read his promises and, and trust in his word because God's always true to his word. But this word experiential, this knowing that he's writing about here says, but when I look at the past of God's people and in my own life, I've seen him be true in this situation, this situation, this situation. If he's true in these situations, why won't he be true in this one? He's going to be. I, I can take him at his word. I can believe him for who he is. I've, I've experienced this. Let me not in the darkness forget what God has shown me in the light. Let me trust in him. After all, when you think about it, faith is our affirmation that we trust that God is true to his word. I'm just going to be honest with you this morning. I lack faith when I question God's trustworthiness. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand if you've ever trusted God's, if you've ever questioned God's trustworthiness because you're in church and I want you to lie. But I'm guessing all of us have been here from time to time where we're going through a difficult situation, where fear starts to consume us, and we go, how are we going to get out of this? Who's going to save me from this? And like, we're believers. We know the answer in in Sunday school class is almost always Jesus, right? 90% shot usually, with any question asked of you in a small group. Jesus. And yet when we doubt, fear increases. But David says, but listen, when you trust, fear decreases, faith increases. Faith and fear cannot exist in our life in equal measure. One will always be greater than the other. And he says, I know experientially that God is faithful. Again, verses 10 through 11, it says, in God whose word I praise, in the Lord whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can man do for me? He's saying my, my security, that word trust again, my security is found in God. And this is what we discover about trials and trust from this psalm. We discover that once David was secure in the Lord, David's fear vanishes. His enemies are crushed. He doesn't know if they're going to be crushed right before him. He doesn't know if it's going to be in the end. He just knows that God's large and in charge and he's going to take care of the situation. And this drives David to faithfulness. Do you remember at the beginning I said that, that this circumstance that's beyond his control drives him into the hands of God? Well, this circumstance that's beyond his control also drives him to faithfulness. It says in, in Psalm 56, look at verse 12 and 13. David says this, he says, I must perform my vows to you, O God. I will render thank offerings to you. This is before he's even redeemed. Think about this. This is before he's even out of the situation. He says, I'm going to give you thank offerings because I'm just going to trust that these offerings can come ahead of time because you are faithful. Paul wrote it this way. He said, look, if fear is consuming you, if you have anxiety in your life, he says, come to the Lord with prayer and petition, with thanksgiving. Interesting. Well, Lord, I'll thank you after you do it. Paul says, no, thank him as if it's done because God's true to his word. David says the same thing. I'll offer up thank offerings before you've even done what I know you're going to do. Verse 13. For you have delivered my soul from death. Yes, my feet from falling, that I may walk before God in the light of life. This is beautiful imagery. Beautiful imagery. He says, listen... 
He says, even though I'm in this dark situation, I'm going to walk in the light. David will write in Psalm 23, he says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, and people have said, well, I mean, he's talking about literal death. He's not. He's talking about trouble. He's talking about times where you're like, Jesus, you can come back now or take me home. That's the darkness he understands. He says, even in the midst of that, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you are with me. You protect me. You guide me. He says, I will not fall. Even in the darkness, you are my light. Rather than falling into the darkness of death, David remains among the living. His life-giving force is God himself. Now, David's options are ours as well. I don't know about you, but, but I know in these situations where I'm going through this time of, of trials and I'm wondering, when is evil going to be taken care of? When is God going to sick the people who maybe are attacking me? And all these type of things that we walk through in, in our flesh, that when the Spirit of God grabs hold of me and says, you have a choice, you can choose your way or God's way. You can defend yourself or you can let God defend you. You can, you can allow fear to cause you to, to run away from God or draw closer to him. David says, listen, I've learned the hard way. <laughs> draw close to God. Choose him. His choice is ours. We can either fall into the darkness of death or, or live in the, the life-giving light of God. We can either choose God's way or the wrong way. You know, I know this doesn't sound encouraging this morning, but I just got to be honest with you because I know that many of us, we come to Christ and we thought when we said yes to Jesus, we weren't going to have any more problems. Now, part of the problem was because we were new in the faith and we hadn't read the Bible. Now, when believers continue to believe that, I realize they're still not reading the Bible because the Bible is very clear that there's trouble this side of paradise. Jesus actually said it very clearly. It's recorded in John 16, verse 33, second part of that verse. He says, in this world, you'll have tribulation. That's not a promise we usually claim every day, is it? Lord, you promised me trouble. That's great. But the second part of that is pretty powerful. But take heart, he says, I've overcome the world. Yeah, you're going to have trouble this side of paradise. As a matter of fact, one of the indicators that we were made for a different place is the fact that we cry out for justice, even though we're not always that just. Is that we know the difference, really, if we were to bear it down between right and wrong, even though sometimes we choose the wrong. And the reality of it is this, this craving for something better shows us we were made for another place. And the good news is that through Jesus Christ, he's provided a way to that place. The problem is we're still here today. And the opportunity is we're still here today. The opportunity to see God work, to draw closer to him, to let the difficulties we go through refine us. See, no matter what hardships we go through, we understand that, that there is Christ in this psalm. He is our hope. And although David was only speaking of one to come, we know the one who has come. For no matter what the hardships that we face as believers, we can have peace because we're in fellowship with Christ. That Jesus showed his faithfulness and power by dealing decisively on the cross of our sin. By giving victory over our greatest enemy, death. Where all of a sudden we realize death is not the end, but a, but a greater beginning for those of us in Jesus. Amen, church? I had a friend after last service, he asked me, he said, you know, so, so David's anointed as king. 
Do you think the fact that the prophet said you'll become king is what got him through some of these things? Because he knew the outcome. And I had to think about it for a minute, and I thought, well, he didn't know the outcome. He had to trust in the one who was going to make that true. Think about that for a minute. Like he had to, in the midst of the existing king chasing him down, trying to kill him, go, but God said I would be king someday. (laughs) How many of you think that was probably a hard one to swallow? He had to think as his own people, these people one day he would rule were betraying him throughout the country, turning him over to Saul, that, that, that he had to say, someday I'm gonna be king over these people, many of which don't even like me right now. Some who do. No, no, he had to have faith. And it's no different for us. Peter says, listen, if you're a believer, you're part of a king of priests and kings, a kingdom of priests and kings. You're a priest and king. That we have the promise of heaven awaiting us. The challenge is in the midst of the trials of this world, believing there's a world to come. The challenge is in the midst of all the difficulties all around us, all the evil, all the sin to say God is gonna deal decisively with that one day. And that he's with us in the midst of all the mess. Church, listen to me. The good news is that Christ has gotten victory and that as believers, we are gonna share that victory with him. Amen? Like I am a very competitive person. I like being on the winning team. And in Christ, we win. And while we're here, what are we doing? We're trying to add more people to that team. To the love and message of Christ. There's hope in Jesus. There's life in Jesus. So what do we learn from this psalm about trust and trial? We learn that if we choose, it can propel us into the hands of God. It can dispel fear. That our our securing the Lord allows the fear to vanish. and, And that in Christ, we can choose him. He can lead us through the darkness, giving us light and purpose in life. In Psalm 56, we learn that we must trust God amidst even the trials, that he never promised we wouldn't have adversity in this world, but that he would be with us, never leaving us. He'd be in the midst of it with us, and that ultimately, ultimately, he's true to his promises, and we will have life and peace and power, even today, and totally in eternity. I don't know where you find yourself this morning, but in a moment, we're going to take part in worshiping the Lord through communion. Communion is a time of remembering what Christ did to give us life. Remembering the promise of eternity that begins the day we say yes to God, even though we, we live still in this fallen world, but there's a day that we're gonna go to a place that's, that's paradise. <laughs> and the challenge today is the same challenge David faced. To know the promise but to ask the question, do we trust that the one who promised it is true? And I want to challenge you, just as David said, to experience, I can say yes. So can we. We have a whole book filled of experiences of people who can say, yeah, he's true to his promises. And my guess is if we were to sit here, there'd be many a testimony throughout this room of how God showed up at just the right time and just the right way. So if you find yourself this morning, whether on campus or online, you've yet to receive Christ as Lord and Savior, that is the relationship you've been created for. As David said, choose the right path, choose him. And you can do that this morning. You can do that right now in the quietness of your heart.
And wherever you find yourself, maybe you're going through a difficulty this morning, and I hope you haven't heard me make light of your troubles. David was facing a life and death situation. Your trouble may be a serious trouble. And I'm not saying Jesus is the answer. It's, everything's going to go. I'm just saying his way is the best way. He's with you. Cling to him. Don't give up. Don't let your trials push you away from him. Let him push you closer to him. Wherever you find yourself this morning, won't you take that next step of faith the Spirit's calling you to take? And let me pray for us this morning. Father God, thank you so much for allowing us to, to explore this psalm on trial and trust. Really, Lord God, a, a challenge we face all too regularly. In the midst of the difficulties of life, if we trust you, then we'll have faith. If we don't trust you, it's an indicator, Lord, that we need to, to bow our knee before you to ask for strength to, to pray that prayer from the New Testament that has always challenged my heart to say, Lord, yeah, I believe, but help me in my unbelief. Grow me in you. Now, Lord, that begins with a relationship with you. So if there's anyone here this morning, whether on campus or online, who's yet to receive you as Lord and Savior, may they now call out to you. Ask you to forgive them of their sins, to thank you for dying on the cross for their sins, being resurrected for their salvation. And in just a moment, as we celebrate communion, celebrate communion, and the great work you've done for us, the great work you're doing in us, and the great work you're going to complete when you return. Help that be something that spurs us on, even in the midst of the difficulties that maybe someone's facing, maybe many are facing this morning, to trust in you. That when everything is said and done, Lord, as we leave this place of gathering, as we scatter throughout this region, that we would be a living example of those who, yeah, face difficulty, but facing knowing that he who is in us is greater than is in the world, and he has given us the victory. And ultimately, we know the end of the story. We triumph with him. May that be our encouragement. May that be the source of our celebration. May it be you, Father God, your love and your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.